So as we jump into this letter, this is a letter in the New Testament that's unlike any other letter. Now, if you've seen maybe a verse on a coffee mug, if you've seen a t-shirt verse, whatever that is, something embroidered in a pillow, if it's not from Psalms, it's probably from Philippians. There are more memorable verses in the book of Philippians, I think, than any other book in the New Testament. In chapter 1, Paul says this dynamic, bold statement, to live is Christ, to die is to gain Christ, meaning bring it on. Paul had to be the most frustrating human being if you hated the gospel. Because he said, hey, you're going to kill me? Great, I'm going to be with Jesus. You're going to let me live? Great, I'm going to talk about Jesus. To live is Christ, to die is grain. What a huge, bold statement. And then you get to chapter 2 and you see this vista of God's beauty in the life and the self-sacrifice of Jesus. That we should have the same attitude is that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, being found in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. In that we see the humility of God and the beauty of Jesus' self-sacrificing life for us. And then chapter 3, Paul goes to another level, and he says, you know, all the stuff in life, All the things I had to give up for Jesus, they are nothing compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He actually says they are rubbish. They're dung. That's the true Greek word right there. It's actually, it's dung, meaning that there's nothing compared to knowing Christ, being found in him, and not having a righteousness of my own that comes to the law, but a righteousness that comes from faith in Christ. I want to know Christ, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of sharing his sufferings. I'm going to pass out. Becoming like him in his death, so somehow I might obtain the resurrection from the dead. Paul's passion in life, the question he asked in life was not, is this right or is this wrong? Will this get more of Christ or will this cause me to lose sight of Jesus Christ? And then we get to chapter 4, and you find these statements, when you're anxious, don't be anxious. I know it's easy to say, but don't be anxious in anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, present your request to God. And the peace of God, a lot of you guys know this, the peace of God that surpasses understanding is going to guard your heart. That's a beautiful image in Christ Jesus. And then finally, I can do it. Not I. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Philippians is just packed with vista, mountaintop, 14ers all across this book that we're climbing up to. So as we walk through this, we're going to see a beautiful picture of who God is and what he has done. And in that also, there's a unique relationship. You know, you read some of the New Testament letters and you think, gosh, the churches were, they were just a mess. Books like Romans and Corinthians especially. Often Paul's addressing the people in those books and and talking about all the mess they're making in life, the bad decisions, the theological mistakes. You really don't find that in Philippians. It truly is a book of joy. And it's a book that allows us to see in many ways what maturity in the Christian faith, or I might say a vital Christian life, looks like. What does a vital Christian life look like? And I think as we walk in that, what I've been doing is comparing that to my own life, which is often not vital and sometimes not even Christian in my thought patterns, and my actions, my attitudes, to really, in this season, to, to take your life and throw it up alongside what you see in the book of Philippians and compare, am I really living the vital Christian life that God has called me to, or do I have a thin veneer of cultural Christianity 
that kind of adopts the ways of the world in certain things, but kind of puts Jesus on top of it, so it cleans it up a bit. But it really doesn't reflect the majesty and the confusing grace and holiness of God as we live this life in a world that doesn't know him. Are we living that vital Christian life? So let's jump into it. You ready? Let's, if you've got a Bible, you can jump in in Philippians chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 1 through 8 and really spend most of our time in Acts 16. So if you want to get your thumb or finger ready there, you can go over to that side. But we're going to look at verses 1 through 8 and discover this, this book and what God's teaching us through it. Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it into completion until the day of Christ. You see, it's right for me. It's right for me to feel this way about all of you because I hold you in my heart. For you were all partakers of grace with me, both in my imprisonment and my defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for all of you with the affections of Christ Jesus. I love that phrase. He's saying to a group of people, I yearn for you. That seems a little too intimate for me to say to a, another man in this room, hey, I yearn for you with the affections of Christ Jesus, meaning his affections are not sourced in himself. They're the affections of Christ for the church. They're the affections of Christ for you. The, the true sign of maturity is that we lose sight really of ourselves. We become humble, and we find value in seeing others wed to Jesus Christ, experiencing his love, experiencing his grace, the sign of maturity. You know what it is? It's called parenthood. You know, in the New Testament, sometimes in the church, we have these images of maturity. It's the guy that can quote all the scriptures. He knows all the theology, and yet he has no children. That's actually a sign of immaturity. He may worship the Bible as an idol, but he doesn't worship the Christ who came to make disciples. And see, as God matures us up through experiences in life, he wants to pour that into the next generation of people so that as you walk in faith in life, you've got boys, girls, you've got young men, young women, young in the faith who are following after you because they're going through the same experiences and they need someone to speak life, hope, truth into their life. In maturity, the picture of maturity is what Paul describes. It's having the affections of Christ for someone else, saying, I am so passionate that you would know Christ, that I want to invest my life into you. Now, he says in this, th this book that it started on the first day, so what I want to do is I want to back up the episode and go back a couple of episodes to Acts chapter 16. So if you want to turn there, in Acts 16, we discover that first day, because he says we had a partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, and so thankfully in the book of Acts, we kind of have that vista, that moment that stage where we see the first day in which Paul comes to Philippi, who is this city in Macedonia, actually the largest city in Macedonia. And Macedonia is just this region. Philippi is a community in that region. And Philippi is a strategic place to plant a church. See, today, if Paul went to a city, he'd go to New York. He'd go to Los Angeles. He'd go to Chicago. He'd go to Denver. go to Dallas. Because, see, in those places, it's a strategic place 
to plant the gospel and plant a church because many people are going to cross through there. Now, when you get to Macedonia, he goes to Macedonia and he goes to Philippi because this is a commercial center. This is a place a lot of people are going to pass through, and there's an opportunity for the gospel to hit a wide range of people. And so in Philippi, he plants this church, and we see the first experience and the first people he comes across as we pick it up in Acts 16, verse 11. And it says, So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to... And I hate this word. I have to apologize. I have to apologize. This is a tough word for me to pronounce. I mess this up all week. Something like Samathrace, something like that. You can give me a help later. And the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city in the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. And we remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come. And one who heard was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods. She was a worshiper of God. And the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her whole household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Because that is who she was. Lydia was a tenacious, determined woman. Now, how do we know that? Well, she is a CEO of her own fashion empire. To sell purple cloth is not to sell cloth. See, just simply to sell cloth is just to be a seller of cloth. To be a seller of purple cloth is to the rich. Only those that had the money could afford the dying process of cloth to go into to actually cause it to become purple. And so she is a person that has raised up in a community mainly of men in a dominant city of commerce, and she has become incredibly successful. We also know she's from Thyatira, which means she's Asian. So this is an Asian Jewish, you following that, businesswoman in this very pagan city And she has rejected the polytheism of the day. She's rejected the culture of that. Polytheism is simply the belief in many gods. And that's what Philippi was about. You know, they had the cloth god. They had the sea god. They had the bread god. They had all the gods. And each person would worship their individual god. Well, here's Lydia going against the stream of culture, rejecting the culture of that day, saying, I worship one god, the creator god. And so as Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke, this is the people that are coming to Philippi. As they come there, they're looking for a place to share the gospel. And here's the truth. The spiritual condition of that city is such that there's no synagogues to be found. See, Paul would often start in a synagogue. It makes sense because the Old Testament Jewish basis was the basis for which Jesus was the Messiah to the Jews. And so he'd go to the synagogue. He talked to his Jewish brothers, but there was no synagogue. The only thing they could find was a women's Bible study. Literally, that's kind of what it is. He supposed, it says in the text, he supposed there may have been a place of prayer. He heard it from someone else. So he goes down by this riverside, and here is this group of women praying and probably quoting the Torah together. And see, that's where he encounters Lydia. And in a very familiar way, he proclaims the gospel, and the Holy Spirit just opens her heart, and she's receptive. Lydia's a seeker, somebody that God 
has already prepared. Many missionaries will talk about going to a community, and here is this man, here's this woman of peace that has so much knowledge about God, and yet there's been no missionary there. Lydia is that kind of woman, that kind of man of peace that really is a bridge to everyone else in that community. And that's where it starts, this woman that simply hears the gospel. And then we turn from this very familiar story to a set of stories that the methods and the experience and the outcomes are very different. I think sometimes in the church we think there's one way to do it. It's my way. It's the Baptist way. It's the Presbyterian way. It's the Methodist way. And those, those ways have made tremendous impact, but God is much more diverse than we allow him to be. And what we see in this next story with this slave girl, it's not an intellectual discussion. It's not this calm encounter. Rather, this is a violent deliverance for a girl that was abused and exploited by the men of that day. So jump down, verse 19. We Actually, not 19, verse 16. As we're going to the place of prayer, we're met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination. It actually says in the Greek, ready for this? I love it. A spirit of a python. Crazy. Now we got to explain that. But a spirit of a python, which brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. And she followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. And Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned to her and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Verse 19, but when her owners saw that their hope of gain, their hope of exploitation was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. This is the level of morality in that city. That to liberate a young woman, a woman that was being trafficked, a woman that was being used, exploited for the financial gain of these men, to do that was actually the scene to be doing something that distrupt, that kind of broke up the peace of that community. In this woman, we don't find a Lydia. We don't find wealth. She's probably illiterate. She's been abused from the beginning of time. She does not trust people. And she has the spirit of a python. Now, why the spirit of the python? Well, if you go back in Greek mythology, there was this idea that the python could actually indwell, and I can't get into the whole story, but indwell people and give them visions of the future. Paul, tapping into that cultural nuance, is saying this girl had the ability to predict, in some ways, whether the future or knowledge about what was happening. And here are these men that are simply exploiting her. And when Paul encounters her, notice he's not rebuking her. His days go by. Days go by, and he knows. Why does he allow this exploitation to continue? Well, he knows as soon as he casts out this spirit, things are going to change. He's biding his time. He knows that when this happens, the people of the community are not going to be happy because, see, he has started to mess with their cultural values. And see, when the gospel comes in, even in our American culture, it needs to start messing with our values. Because, see, our cultural values and God values, if we think they're one and the same, we're seeking the wrong God. God always offends every culture at a different place. And we need to allow his offense in some ways to really follow him, to have that vital Christian life, to encounter us in the ways that he's speaking today. But in this story, we see a dramatic different experience. It's not the intellect that's engaged, is it? It's not this quiet picture, you know, deer panted for the water kind of story. It's a violent demonstration of power. 
I'm comfortable with Lydia. I'm not as comfortable with the slave girl. Can I be honest about that? And I think in our American Christianity, we're much more comfortable with the Lydias of the world, those that are seekers, that are open, that are ready. The power of that moment in Lydia's life is just as great as the slave girl. But see, there was a different oppression. There was a spiritual oppression. Before she could hear the gospel, her physical and spiritual needs had to be met. Many people in the world today are under the oppression of others, often for financial gain. There are those that try to seek financial gain by moving, by being immigrants, coming to different places, under the oppression of poverty. What does God do? God wants to liberate. God wants to lift up, and he wants to do that, see, through his church. This story, this woman, completely different. And then we come to the third. Not just the businesswoman, not a woman that's broken down by life, but rather the everyday man, the blue-collar worker we find this jailer where Paul and Silas are cast into a prison cell, we encounter this last individual. Verse 19. And so when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, see, they seized Paul and Silas, dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these, Jewish, these Jews are disturbing our city. Realized they just liberated a young woman. This is the the gross actions these men have done. They advocate for customs and laws for us as Romans to accept or practice. And the crowd joined in attacking them. And the magistrates tore their garments off and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them. Notice the language, safely. And yet what does he do? Having received the order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. Hey, keep them safely. I know how to do that. This is a man who understands the art of torture. This is a hardened man. He has seen pain, and he can shut it off. He has seen human suffering. He has seen hardship, and he has brought it into the lives of others, and he is content with who he is. See, this is a man whose life is really associated with his job. We're going to discover when his job is threatened, his life becomes threatened. This is a hard-hearted man, very different from Lydia and her status and culture, very different from that slave girl. This is, a, in some ways, middle-class, working-class man who just wants to do his job, come home, have a beer, watch the game, and be left alone. Three different individuals. Three different ways the gospel comes in, three different, but actually one different outcome, which is to become a follower of Jesus Christ. And so watch how this this story plays out in verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying, very countercultural and singing to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was this great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. Immediately the doors were open and everyone's bonds were unfastened. And when the, jail, when the jailer woke, his dedication, and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are here. 
And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, trembling with fear. He fell down before Paul and Silas and then brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And notice, and they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his household. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds and was baptized at once, he and his family. And then he brought them up into his house and set food before him. And he, he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Because see, for him, that was a miracle. I can imagine sitting with his son, his daughter, can you believe that I now worship God? That my hard heart is now alive, that there is this now compassion and love I want to express to others. Realize what transformed this man's life. On one hand, there's a miraculous, this earthquake that happens. The, the doors are, are flung open, but notice what Paul and Silas seek. They don't seek revenge. Instead, as Jesus taught, love your enemies. Who is their enemy? And it's this, the evil of this man that just tortured them, put them in the stocks, which meant their bodies were contorted to such an extent that they could not find a resting place. Their muscles would literally atrophy. Their body would cramp up, and they would be in that position for days. Here was this man that had just tortured them after they'd been beaten with rods. But instead of saying, hey, you got what you deserve, buddy. And I think all of us would feel justified in that. Come on, the guy just beat us. We're in the stocks. Hey, I can walk away from this one, Jesus. But see, the gospel goes deeper than we sometimes want to go. And instead of giving him what he deserves, this, this man sees grace. What's grace? To give someone what they don't deserve? To love him? To be concerned for him? Because see, if the prisoners escape, this man's life is on the line because see, his job and his life were one. His idol, his God, was his career. And to lose his career was to lose life. What did Paul do? First, he gave him an experience of grace. See, before he could hear the gospel, he had to see it. There are many people in our community, they need to see it long before they hear it. Because they hear it, but the life of the gospel needs to be associated with the message of the gospel. I think more than any other time in human history... For us in the United States, with so many sound bites and opinions and no skin in the game, people need to see the life of the gospel that's associated with the message of the gospel. They need to see that there is a community of grace where people are loved when they hate us. Now, we may not want that, but that's the life that God has called us into because Jesus said, as I have been persecuted, so shall you be persecuted. Let's be persecuted for following Christ, not for being jerks. Let's be persecuted for living out the vital Christian life and not a thin veneer of Christianity. What do we see in them? We see a community of grace to someone who is not in their family so that he might become part of the family. Do you see that? What you see is how the gospel shows up in the life for a man or a woman that's following Jesus, and it is absolutely beautiful and miraculous. And so imagine this, you ready? This becomes the church. This is not my A-team, I tell you. Now Lydia, I, I go for Lydia, you know what I mean? Because she can get things done. In our economy of things, we see more value in a Lydia 
than I certainly do in that slave girl. She's going to be trouble, guys. Come on. You know when she shows up on Sunday, she's going to be a grace builder. Why? She does not trust anyone. Every man that she has known has abused her, has hurt her. She's going to take a lot of effort. And just because she comes to faith in Christ doesn't suddenly mean that her heart is fully warmed to trust another human being. No, there's going to be some counseling. There's going to be some love. It's going to be hard. And then you got the jailer. Suck it up, girl. Slave girl. Can't you just kind of change your life? I mean, his heart is hard. To take her alongside Lydia, to take her alongside the slave girl, this must have been a mess of a beginning, and yet these are the very people to which Paul says, I thank my God every time I remember you and all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy. Why? Because I've seen the gospel come to life in your life. And he says, the only thing that holds us together is that we share grace together. You share in God's grace with Did you notice that? Isn't that amazing? What do we share together? Hey, we may not share the same background. Some of you may have had an experience like the slave girl. You've been abused. You've been used. There's some healing, emotional healing that needs to take place. But see, we share in the grace of God together, which is stronger than your brokenness. And maybe for some of us, we came from a different place, a place of status, a place of opportunity. And in that place of opportunity, even though we looked good on the outside, we still were broken on the inside, and we needed the gospel to come alive and to follow a God that is much more kind and merciful than the gods that we were pursuing. We were like Lydia. And God, in his crazy mercy, brings them all together. Because, see, that's what the church is. It's not a gathering of people like me. It's a gathering of people who have encountered the grace of God and want others to experience it. You know what that is? It's called late nights, long meetings. It's messy. Because, see, what is this story really about? It's, it's about the fact that the gospel is for everyone. And there's no one that's so far from God that the gospel can't reach. I mean, these would not be the people we'd start with. We may pray, have a prayer effort, and we go to Lydia. We get Lydia in, and we say, hey, let's get all her friends. Because, again, that's where I understand the gospel. Hey, communicate the message. It's a knowledge. It's an information. Maybe it'll come down and eventually warm the heart. But which of us are going to chase after the girls, the slave girls, the broken? And then how about those hard-hearted people that take a lot of grace as well to get past the exterior? Because, see, they're not going to come at you with a welcome. They're going to come at you with a rejection. They are so cold to the gospel that they want to protect themselves from what you have. Are we willing to walk with God enough that we could break down that wall? To love enough? To not be offended when in our country offense is a right? It's a constitutional right to be offended and to treat you how I want when I am offended. But Jesus said we do not curse and respond to cursing with cursing. If you're going to overcome evil, only one way. It's the cross. Overcome evil with good. What do we see here? We see on the one hand, everyone needs the gospel. And see, God is powerful enough to reach everyone. But second, I want to suggest the gospel is the most unifying force in the world. The gospel is the most unifying force because what it does is it destroys all the walls that we build in life. All the walls that we spend an investment of life building our life and our reputation upon. In one moment at the cross, all of those walls fall down. What walls? 
racial walls. The hostility between Jew and Greek, male and female. All of that begins to diminish because, see, at the cross, the only thing we can bring is our sin and my faith. Which means there's an equal playing ground at the cross and all things begin to fall. Socioeconomic status, education, politics. Because Jesus, the Lord of lords and the King of kings, becomes the center of my heart. He reigns on the authority of my heart. And that link between you and me and Jesus is much more valuable than any other wall I might build in life. Now, it takes time for those walls to fall sometimes. But Christianity is the most unifying force in the world. Here's the challenge. That's not how the world sees it. And that's my fault. What do I mean by that? It's the fault of the followers of Christ. It's standing on the walls and preaching the gospel. Instead of recognizing there are walls in us. You know, if renewal is going to start, it's got to start in us. It's got to start in us taking this question seriously. I need to take this vitality of the Christian life and compare it alongside the vitality of the life that I'm living and allow some of these walls to fall. Is Jesus Christ truly the Lord of lords and the King of kings? Is he what I want to stand upon? As the world sees the church today, certainly in the United States, you know, it's interesting, and I just want to share this a moment. I went back to Arlington, and I got to connect with some of my friends and really family and in Arlington, it's a diverse community, uh, multi-ethnic community. And so to connect with some of my brothers and sisters of different backgrounds and races and to hear their experience, I've missed that. Because many of those people feel very much from certain brothers and Chris, uh, sisters in Christ, they feel very much distant from the church, that we're not even listening to each other. Because we've been polarized so much by the ideologies of the day that we're not even submitting those ideologies to Jesus. That's where it has to start. Because, see, the culture of Jesus always offends us in every culture in some way. Where is Jesus offending you? That's where it starts. It's called repentance. Wow, as, I, as I'm following Christ, God, you're showing some things in me that really need to change. And when you repent, you're not saying, God, hey, what a loser I am. You're saying, God, what, what a majestic God you are. That though I'm struggling right now, you love me. And he who began a good work is going to complete it. There is no more unifying force in the world than the gospel. You know, when you look at the religions of the world, they basically find themselves on one or two continents. Do you realize that 20% of Christians are in Asia? Maybe a little less now, 20% are in Europe. 20%, actually less than 20% are in North America. 20%, I'm counting to, 20% are in Latin America. 20%, probably growing more than 20%, are now in Africa. Why? Christianity doesn't, doesn't bring a culture. It can't, it can't find itself in one culture. No, it goes in and it transforms every culture. Because it brings life. And where there is life, there is freedom. And where people are being set free, the world is attracted. You know why we were called Christians? Because black and white, slave and free, male and female, masters and slaves were all standing side by side, worshiping one God. And the, the people said, I don't know what this is. They're just little Christs. Because that's who Jesus was. If we're going to reach this community, Jesus has to, and that power of the gospel has to be that beauty, that, that, that message within us that we're resonating in. 
And so I just challenge you today, where are you on that? What walls are we building? What are we standing on? What's our hope? And as a community, do we have enough grace for each other to fail in that? Do we have enough grace for each other to disagree on different issues in our culture? And even disagree passionately, but do we love Jesus enough and recognize the need for this community to know Christ that we're willing to even have conversations, set those things aside, and pursue a life for each one of us that draws us closer to him? There's a dynamic power in the gospel, but it's not a power of faith just to get to heaven. It's a power of faith that transforms us day by day so that others might say, there is something about those people, there's something about that God that is unique in the world, and there is a salvation that he wants to bring. Will you join us in that? Will you join us in that so that we at Bergen Park, in supporting all the churches in our community, might allow that power to truly transform the slave girls and men, the average working blue-collar people in our community, the Lydia's, to see all of them come to know Christ. And because of that, to say together, hey, isn't it great when you remember them? Because we share together in the grace of God. Hey, that's a beautiful story. That's a story, folks, only God can write. Let me pray for us. Lord, I thank you that... The gospel is the power of God. And as much, Father, in my own ingenuity and techniques and methods, I want to I wanna bring the gospel to people. It's only in desperation that it's actually going to happen. It's only in the desperation of humbling ourselves before you and seeking your presence that lives will be changed. Because they're not going to be impressed with our music. They're not going to be impressed with our preachers. They're not going to be impressed with our buildings if, if we're not impressed with Jesus. And so, Father, forgive us for throwing up methods and strategic ideas, but not submitting our knee to the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one that's rescued us and continues to want to rescue us from the brokenness of life, from the hard-hearted experiences, that this needs to be a place where the broken come in, where those that have emotional scars and stains can be loved, and where grace upon grace upon grace is given, where we do not give up. And we say to that person, God's began the work. He's going to finish it. Lord, would we have that kind of vision for you? And Lord, would we have that vision that enables us as we go out in this community not not to live in the right of offense, but in the right of grace, which says to this cursing, I'm going to overcome evil with good as Christ works through me. Father, when we feel those moments that we want to build walls, would we remember that at the cross all those walls have fallen? And that we worship a God that died for us and rose again so that in that act of repentance and humility, the power of Christ now dwells in us. And so, Father, help us. Help us to love each other well. Help us to love this community well. And help us to walk in the power of what you have done. We love you and thank you. In Jesus' name. Amen.